How many of you have heard preaching on this section? I'm sure most everybody has heard a sermon in this section. Henry has his hand halfway up. It's like, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. I'm just playing with you here, Henry. Uh, I'm sure all of you have heard a sermon on this section, and uh, I can't remember myself ever having heard one. But when there are famous scriptures or ones that we know really well, um, we would do well to put out of our mind everything that has come before. Not, Not because those things aren't valuable, but whenever we look at the scripture, especially things that we've seen thousands of times, perhaps, we are seeking to come with fresh eyes. Not necessarily that we would have some new insight or revelation, but we would just see what's actually there. We must not be constrained by all of what we've heard in the past, um, although those things are supposed to uh, inform us uh, ultimately Whenever we look at the scriptures, we want to hear what the Spirit is saying um, in the words, not, not in some abstract way, through the grammar, through all the way that it's put together. We, we should want to see what the text says, <clears throat> because sometimes we notice things that maybe we didn't notice before. We're like, oh, it's never been emphasized that way. And this is the glory of the scriptures. They have a rich depth about them that continually speak to us, and there are all sorts of different things that instruct us in a passage such as one like this, uh, which is famous for so many good reasons. Now, I stop uh, just as a word of like outline. I am stopping in an odd place in verse 17, pretty much just because I intend to pick up and make points that I won't be able to make today because there's so much that could be spoken of here. I'm trying to stay limited and focused for all of our sake. Now, as we look at verse one, you'll notice that from the beginning words here, it says, but Saul still breathing threat and murder against the disciples. The the last time we encountered Saul was at the end of uh, chapter seven, beginning of eight, in this section where Saul is there having the coats of those who are stoning Stephen. He was in approval, consenting of Stephen's murder. There he was breathing threats and murder, as it were. And with unabated zeal, it seems, he continues. He is still on this zealous track. He's on a tear, as it were to hurt the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, Saul is very zealous in his desire to persecute the church of the living God. And so he is still breathing. This is introducing him again, of course. So what does he do? He's zealous. There's not somebody in front of him right now. There's not a Stephen to stone at this particular moment. So what's he do? He devises an evil scheme in order to carry out his hatred for the disciples. And he has a particular legal way that he wants to enact that. We see this in verse two. Uh, Focus your attention on that verse. And it says, um, so he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters 
to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul here convinces the highest Jewish authority in the land. You remember, we've seen them a couple times at this point. But the highest Jewish authorities in the land are giving approval. He says, will you please give me legitimate paperwork so that I can go take it to local authorities in another place and imprison Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem? His idea is to somehow, with some sort of accusation, prosecute them in a Jewish court and presumably bring them and put them to death. Those are, those are uh, readings from other parts of the scripture. But we see, we should notice that at this point, one thing that we've seen in Acts is the increasing hardness that has come upon the Jewish uh, elite and, and uh, Israel's leaders at this time, it looks like from this very point, the sort of frozen hardening that has happened to their hearts uh, is, is finished. There will be no unthawing of this freeze. So Paul, because of the hardness of the Jewish people, secures these documents and then he heads off on his mission. And then in verse three, you have him getting close to Damascus. Now, just a word about what's going on here when Paul secures these documents. It's it's thought that um, the high priest in that day or the, the high priest and priests in that day had received from the Roman government the right of extradition. Let me define that because that might not be a common word for you. It just means that the Roman authorities, although they were the power and and the Jews, as it were, weren't a sovereign state, yet in this matter concerning things that regarded their own law, they would be given the, the rights of a sovereign state to bring others who have fled the law and to prosecute them in their own place. You you even see this dynamic happening with with Pilate and the Jewish leaders. He said um, the dynamic that's going back and forth is they need the Romans to carry out the crucifixion. But he's like, hey, he's done nothing wrong according to our laws. You go and, and prosecute him according to your laws. You guys do it. And they won't settle for that, and God's plan is unfolded there. But you see this um, tension because Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation was under the Romans at this point. And in this matter, it's thought that <clears throat> the reason that the Jews, although they don't have their, they're, they're not uh, a sovereign nation here, they, they have been given this, this permission, which explains why um, why Paul or Saul can can go from Jerusalem into Syria. That's where Damascus is. Um, there were, as you know, as we've seen recently, there was persecution and people fled 
And so the idea is those people who fled, Paul would come up with a scheme to say, well, they're not fleeing because of persecution. They've actually broken our law. We want to go there and have a letter to the synagogues in Damascus that are there and that those local authorities would help us uh, uncover any of those Christians who we want to prosecute and bring them back to Jerusalem. This is extradition. This is what's happening. It's, it's all a fiction too, since they had broken really no law at all. It is just an excuse to persecute the church of God, which shows the terrible estate that uh, Saul himself was in at this point. He wants to legally prosecute. We, we could say, <laughs> I won't make extended application, but I, I hope you can see that local authorities in our area are vital for us to have on our side. <laughs> this is from the statewide session. If, uh, if local authorities will coordinate with the state, then, then they'll hand us all over. But if we can win the local authorities, then, then we have a fighting chance to, to hold those things off. I'll let you think about that more on your own time. Now, <clears throat> focusing on the text here, we then turn. He is on his mission to go destroy the church of God. And he is going to Damascus. And it says in verse 3 that he is approaching Damascus. He's getting near to being able to accomplish this legal plan in order to lock people up. And um, before I read verse three through five, I just want to say that I'm, I'm really going to refrain from pulling in other details which come from the other places elsewhere. There are, if you want to read some of those extended sections where Paul gives more information, uh, you can read chapters 22 and 26. But you have to remember, Luke doesn't need those in the story right now. They actually clog up the point that he's trying to make. So I'm going to withhold from some of those things uh, insofar as I can. We don't need to know those things right now. That's why they're not in the text. And so those things are saved for later. This will help us to weed out the information we don't need and only have the information that actually causes us to know what Luke wants us to know in Acts chapter 9, not chapter 22, not chapter 26, though they are important in their own right. Now listen, verse 3 through 5 reads, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So as he is nearly arriving his destination to carry out his evil deed, he sees this glorious radiant light from heaven, which is Christ Jesus himself. That's why he hears the Lord Jesus' voice uh, from heaven. The, the risen Lord unveils in a massive way his glory to Saul in such a powerful way that he falls to the ground. And we later learn that it's him and his companions. 
Now, you and I have all been in a dark place and walked into a, a light that's been blinding and, and you make this kind of gesture to block your eyes because it's, but none of us have ever like almost fallen down because of that. <laughs> this is a supernatural light. This is the light that comes from Jesus at the transfiguration. One that makes you want to fall on your face or in his case, fall on his side or whatever. Uh, this is the experience of a great magnitude that none of us will have until we die, probably and are in the presence of Christ himself. This is a revelation fit for apostleship. This is a revelation fit for one who needs, uh, by definition of his call, to see physically the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Though he has ascended to the right hand of God and is seated there, he is yet at this moment seen by Paul. You can read that throughout much of the New Testament. It's, it's really true to say that there's not much he doesn't derive from here. Galatians, he has a huge section about the things that he had heard from the Lord Christ here. <clears throat> We're only having a brief snippet. That is, the Lord Jesus appeared to him. And that's what sounds off in verse uh, 17 below. And in verse, I think it's 30, 37 below or, or something like that with Barnabas. Anyways, the, the clear point is that the risen Lord Jesus physically appeared to him with his blinding glory. Now, <clears throat> what he says should always be held very, very high in our heart. The Lord Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is, this is like if uh, Stephanie punched Scott in the shoulder and I said, ow, why are you punching me? <clears throat> how, how can the Lord Jesus say this? He is not persecuting Jesus, is he? <clears throat> he, he is persecuting Jesus. But why can this be said? This is a, a really important point to make. What underlies this is a biblical doctrine that we need to be instructed in. And since going through Colossians, I've been regularly bringing this up, but <clears throat> I feel that it is something that needs to be instructed upon regularly. So this is, this is instruction from um, this. I want to instruct you in the doctrine called union with Christ. Uh, I'll say a little bit about it. Let me say a little disclaimer first, and, and that is we must understand that this reality that I'm up, about to talk about, which is in theological terms called union with Christ, is a, is a discussion, even if you haven't heard that term very much beyond this pulpit, um, and is not very commonly talked about in wider evangelicalism in our day, that's not to say it wasn't extremely important in days past, this doctrine that we're talking about right now, union with Christ, is, is a discussion of the gospel. It is a discussion of what is essential to understanding 
our salvation. It would really be proper for me to say union with Christ is our salvation. Okay? So this doctrine is not something secondary. It, it is what salvation is. Okay? So we're talking about the central message of the gospel at this point. Secondly, all theologians also recognize that, that this doctrine itself is pretty mysterious in some sense and is inexpressible. I was reading Ab Rockle this week. He's a, a second Dutch reformer, second generation Dutch reformer, maybe one of the last of the Puritans. And he states that it's a doctrine that's better experienced than articulated <laughs> because it is ineffable. Uh, though it's not fully comprehensible, just like the doctrine of the Trinity is not fully comprehensible, that doesn't mean the Bible's not uh, doesn't have tons and tons and tons of stuff to say it about it. In fact, if you want to go through just Paul himself, if you look at a little phrase and you just type it in in your your Bible software, it it comes up in a few different ways, but. If you type it in any, any Bible app or even on the computer, in Christ, this is all those verses. And I, I think if you do that, there's like 60 to 70 plus uses of this just in Paul alone of being in Christ. That's what we're talking about. That's, that's where this comes from. Now, <clears throat> I've talked about it in the past, but I want to just give a a succinct definition. Most basically, union with Christ is a doctrine that says that by the supernatural power of the Spirit and through faith produced by the Spirit, we are united or joined to the person of Christ. Okay, but by the supernatural power of the Spirit and through faith, we are joined to the person of Christ. <clears throat> okay, that's, that's basically what it is. It's very simple. Um, this is why in a couple different places we can see that Paul, in a very striking way, in Ephesians 5 verse 32 says, I'm going to tell you a great mystery. And the great mystery is this, that that Genesis passage in Moses, that the two became one flesh. I'm saying that that refers to Christ and the church. The the two become one flesh. That's Christ and the church. We're like, what? (laughs) Uh, This is the same thing that is talked about also that Christ is the head and we are his body one and the other are are so linked that that they can't be pulled apart the the two that become one flesh never lose their distinctiveness you know if you take falcon and i still falcon and i'm still fred yet we we are so um connected that you can't consider one without the other. And so our lives, as it were, are intertwined in a a personal and inseparable way. So we, therefore, in this, are most intimately and personally connected in 
in Jesus Christ in a, 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 a bond that is produced by the Spirit and, and by faith, which cannot be ever be removed. It's more than legal. It's, it's more than um, just us. There's so many things to say about it. I don't want to get I don't want to get too off track, but what we should understand is we don't ever become Jesus. <laughs> we don't ever become divine or somehow mixed with a God man. We we remain who we are, but because we are united to him, <clears throat> um our lives or our our whole existences are bound up together even as one so that Jesus can pray that his disciples, this is the high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays about all future Christians saying that uh, he prays that the Lord would make them, that is really us right now, us one, even as the father and the son are one. We are, we are actually in this union, us being so connected to Christ can say that through Jesus, we are a part of the life of the triune God, which sounds extremely mystical. <laughs> and, and in a sense, it is. Uh, we don't want to get off track because obviously there's qualifications to that. We don't ever become God. Jonathan Edwards has a really good way of putting this, talking about the eternal state um, you guys know what an asymptote is. Asymptote. Um, if you if you have a if you have a graph um, and you have a, a right angle, an asymptote is is like a curved line that gets ever and ever and ever closer to the to the ninety degrees. Okay, but it never touches <clears throat> the Son of God, uh, uh, the the perfect God Man, uh, whom we are being conformed into His image. In the eternal state, we are made ever and ever and ever closer to the God-man, being conformed to the image of Christ without ever becoming him. We are so made and conformed to his image. In the same way, we are, we are bound up in the life of the Trinity such that um, God always considers us even as a part of himself. The Son of God, that therefore can say about suffering, that's what's going on about persecution that's happening to his body, to those whom he is bound to himself. Upon that reality of our union together, it is only because of that he can then say this other sentence. See, this is like the foundational truth, which makes sense of why Jesus can even say that. That's what we're talking about. So <clears throat> on the basis of our union with Christ, Christ considers all of our sufferings, even as his very own suffering. And all of our pain and those things inflicted upon us is considered as inflicted upon his very self. We hear Jesus doing the same things to the disciples. You remember in the Gospels where it said um, that, that Jesus... Um, that Jesus says, thank you for serving me when I was hungry and feeding me. Thank you for clothing me when I was naked. And so for the, and his disciples like, well, when did we do that? And he said, well, as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers. 
Jesus is so identified with his body that all of our service unto one another even is done as if it were, and in some sense it is, directly unto Christ. We, we are in this intimate union, which is uh, really hard to put into words. The, the Bible gives us bunches of pictures of this. One is of marriage. Another is, is, of, <clears throat> another is of the covenant of marriage. Another is of us being brought as children into the family of God. And another is of uh, the vine and the branches. It's the same idea. We're, we're engrafted. So there's a difference between the branch and the vine. But the interplay between the two is kind of mysterious about how they're connected when we make that application to us. That's what we're saying. So because Jesus is a part of us, in all its proper ways that we should consider that. And we are a part of him. Therefore, we have fellowship in our sufferings together. And he has fellowship with, uh, he has fellowship with us in our suffering so that persecution against him is, is attacking Christ himself. And this is what the Apostle Paul was doing. Now, <clears throat> That's the doctrinal instruction. And now what I want to do is make an application before I bring it back to um, Paul here. And that is because of this union with Christ, um, it is us who are united with Christ. Of course, that applies individually, but we need to really be pressed pretty consistently to think about ourselves as members of one another, truly as one body, remaining uh, distinctions apply between husbands and wives and different families and such and so forth. Yet there is a sharedness, a, a fellowship, a participation in one another that is supposed to be ever increasing in its depth. If we're honest, I think, we will say that our church culture here at this present time, like many, has not arisen above the, the experience of our American culture. Our church culture, in some sense, is a reflection of our American culture here. It's less like the biblical model and more like the American model. And what we need to see is that it needs to be more like the biblical model. And that's hard because the typical experience of the American family is that we might do well in our personal lives, but there in our normal experience is an arm's distance length between us and everybody else. Now, there are appropriate boundaries, and I'm not going to make qualifications because quite frankly, this is never our problem that I can tell. You know, I love Scott, but he, he's never come in my house unannounced and rummaged through my fridge. Uh, if we had that problem, then I might have to make qualifications, but let me not do that because that's not our problem. We don't have that problem. Rather, our problem in American culture is rather that we are typically way more comfortable pursuing personal peace and affluence 
and keeping everybody else out of that. This is the American model. This is not Christ's model. We are not merely, although personal peace is great, we are not merely to be pursuing our own individual lives in isolation from one another. We are a body, and that implies fellowship. So union implies sharing and suffering. And I think suffering's kind of down the line. Like, when are you really going to take a bullet for somebody else? When are you really going to go to jail for somebody else on behalf of them? I think that kind of sharing, that kind of fellowship requires a lot of things (laughs) before that in order to get there. It's really easy to say you would go to jail for somebody, uh, but when the uh, piper needs to be paid... Would would you really do that? And and what I want to exhort us to is to see how we might bridge the gap between what our common American experience is and how you get to a place where just like Christ, you could consider someone else's sufferings so important that it affects you. <clears throat> um, the, um there's more maybe that I could say that, that would be sensitive to draw at this point. But what I want is to give three ways that I think are um, how to move ever closer to that sort of goal. Because Christ wants us to be a sort of, a sort of family that is tied uh, uniquely apart from every other, uh, every other way of relating to one another. <clears throat> And um, yet I'm not saying don't have any boundaries or something like that. So don't, don't hear me without those things. So first would be attendance. First would be a, attendance on, on, a, on a Sunday morning particularly. <clears throat> Although I think we could talk about this even further than this. But I think in order to show that we are truly united in Christ, that we are to have fellowship here on, on Sunday and show up for each other relentlessly on Sundays so that by and large, it would be really, really uncommon for us to say, okay, where did this person go? They're always here. I think on a Sunday, we ought to strive insofar as it makes sense. I'm not, don't make me qualify everything that I want to say, okay? You can ask me follow-ups if you want. We should strive just like we would in school or for work to have perfect attendance, Shouldn't we? The Lord's Day is, is serious. Now, there's only 52 Sundays in a month, or in a, in a year, <laughs> in a month, that'd be weird, uh, in a year. There's only 52, which, which means that's one-seventh of the year, of course. And if you, uh, if you start to do the math on, <clears throat> on, on, and do percentages, things change radically very quickly on Sundays because there's Honestly, just not that very many of them. So, for example, if you missed five Sundays in a year, that would be a 90% attendance rate. That's low. That's really low because in any job, that's essentially equivalent to missing a whole month of work. Can you imagine one of your employees showing up (laughs) one whole less month of work? 
And that's not on top of like legitimate things. I think legitimately I probably could have said, don't, don't come to, don't come, don't come if you're sick. Like obviously we all, and that, that's a number of like excuse absences or maybe you have a vacation a year or something like that. But beyond that, uh, all the unexcused absences, as it were, that, that would be, that would be like five would be a whole month of, of work. Um, any boss who had an employee like that would say, sorry, we got to let you go. It's just obvious. You don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. And I think we should take that very seriously in our context where it's, it's not very common to, to, um, value the Lord's day, even on a, on a wide scale basis. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into the same level of, of deterioration as the rest of our Christian culture in this regard. That's the first relentlessly show up on Sundays. Second of all would be communication. We all really need to be speaking to everyone in the congregation. Um, and, and that starts small by knowing every single person in this congregation, adults and children alike by name, knowing who they are. Secondly would be to build on that. Like any other relationship, know what they do, what makes them tick, all that sort of stuff. Try to work on that. And then lastly, the third one that I really want to call us to, because I think, I think fellowship is one thing that we need to work on because we are one family in Christ, and that is hospitality. I think this is a a big missing part of our culture in general. Uh, We see it in the pastoral qualifications, and I think this is is one of the areas where even very serious churches about the qualifications might even uh, fudge a little bit on this, because hospitality is is not as common in our day as it may have been in times in times past because we're so isolated and insulated. But the, I think this is an essential part of growing in this fellowship we are to have in the body and sharing in our sufferings and in our joys, in, in highs and lows, whatever it is, we're supposed to have a, a fellowship, a sharing of life together. And when you invite somebody into your house, your house is a reflection of who you are, both good and bad. <laughs> we have great parts of our house and unkept parts. And usually that's a reflection on our self-control, on how we think about our, our own uh, workings. And so when we invite people into our homes, there's just a level of transparency that you don't get in other places and so here will help us to participate with one another. We should think about the fact that our union with Christ has brought us into participation with the Lord at his table. Similarly, I think that our participation in Christ with one another, one of the ways that we experience true fellowship with one another is this idea of eating in house to house that we see in in Acts 2. There is a fellowshipping with one another around the table. This idea of we have made fellowship with God or we have made participation with Christ Jesus and so we share a meal with him. The same is to be said about our 
church body. And so <clears throat> I think we ought to say, or maybe it would be helpful to say, hospitality is, is the key that in many ways unlocks the door to your life, that allows others to participate in you and you in them. It's the specific place where trust can be built and where truth can be shared and where we can begin working to show someone that we are for them so that when suffering comes, which is severe or or hard, we can participate with them in that. What causes them to weep and grieve would likewise cause us to weep and grieve. Okay, that's enough of that application. I hope you take that to heart. I certainly am challenged by it myself. Now, we're going to go somewhat uh, quickly through six through nine and, and, uh, and then pause and reflect on 10 through 17. But, but there is really one point, and I've already made it, but I'm going to show you how it connects to the Apostle Paul and to us. In verse six through nine, <clears throat> read it with me here. It says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. This is to the Apostle Paul. And then it says the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice or hearing the sound, but seeing, excuse me, seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw, uh, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. <clears throat> now, I think there are uh, two uh, different actions and responses that are put together in order to explain one another well. Because you might just say, well, what's the deal with eating and drinking about? He's not doing that. <clears throat> and I, I don't think Luke actually leaves us to speculate. He brings up two, two, uh, two things that are alike to help explain, mutually explain one another. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. The, the two things that are joined, first is from the men who are speechless. That is, these two men hear a sound that uh, they, they have, they're, they're witnessing something and it's, it's amazing to them. They don't see a form, they hear the sound, they know Paul's talking uh, to somebody and they're they're just dumbfounded. They they've never experienced something like this. They're in shock. So they have this supernatural experience, and then they're astounded and shocked. In the same way, too, though Paul in a different way, he hears uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, in whom he wants to persecute his church, confront him, and. St- strikes him blind in a temporary judgment, uh, this supernatural action, and likewise leads him to shock. It leads him to the point where he can't eat and he can't drink. He's, he's not doing any of those things. He is, he is struck by this judgment, and now he's led into this serious contemplation of all of his life. He, he's headed in one direction and in, is confronted by 
the the chief and the founder of our faith who's going in the total opposite direction. He is halted from his pursuits by the judgment of God. Now, let me say one thing autobiographically, and I, I think this is the experience of many different saints. <clears throat> it, it was the sense in my own life of the wrathful hand and judgment of God on me, which caused me to seriously contemplate the reality of my sin. It was, it was nothing other than that that halted me in my pursuit of sin and caused me to turn away from my madness. It, it was the word of God that obviously completed the process, but it is the case that God uses the fear of himself, a real terror, a, a, a righteous terror of the Lord that causes us to contemplate whether or not we are saved and whether or not we ought to repent and go the other way. Now, as Paul is doing this and has this time to contemplate, he is led into this place and we sort of shift scenes in verse 10 and following. I'll just read from here just so it's fresh in our mind. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight in the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Uh, let, let me... Uh, I'll, I'll just keep reading and then I'll come back to this. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But Lord, the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I just just pause there because I want to focus on what we can see in 10 through 17. First of all, notice the Lord Jesus himself communicates to Ananias not only what to do, go to, go to this place, look for this house, you're going to find this man who's doing this, okay? Very, very specific in a vision. But he also communicates to him something that's absolutely amazing. He says, now listen, this man Ananias, or this man Saul, has had a vision of you coming to lay your hands on him. He's saying, listen, I've already given this man a prophetic vision of what's about to happen. You go and do what I, what I told you to do, right? And now, naturally, most of us would go like, what can you say to that? All right, Lord, here I go. Because uh, how are you going to argue? He's already seen a vision. It's, it's, it's set. It's going to happen. But I think Luke tells us this just to highlight how strongly 
um, his hesitation is, Saul had become so notorious as an enemy of the church, perpetrating evil against God, that even in the midst of this, he has a, a hesitation to voice to the Lord. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe, Lord, you haven't considered this. <laughs> uh, so, so this just shows that Paul had been seriously on attack and had become so known as hating the people of God uh, so as to heighten our mind, uh, heighten in our mind what God is to do in this situation and what kind of enmity and hatred he will overcome in the Apostle Paul, in the not yet Apostle Paul. Now, how does the Lord respond He simply says, he is mine. Saul is mine. I've elected him. It's the word chosen. I've I've elected him. And I have given him a particular purpose. He is mine. I have chosen him. I have purposes for him. The answer is come to alleviate all the concern. And what is the truth of the scriptures that should alleviate Ananias' concern? That is the doctrine of eternal election. This is what should alleviate all of his concerns. Of course, we should recognize that prophecy itself is simply God unveiling to man his eternal plan, which is absolutely fixed. That is what prophecy is. That, that's the vision that was had. God communicating what he's already determined. And God's plan determines everything, even my nasally voice today, <clears throat> and has determined all the things which take place. But this, is, this truth is not just for the Apostle Paul. It's, it's our truth. As the Apostle Paul Although he's a chosen servant of the Lord, so are we. We're called servants of Christ too. We're called ministers of the new covenant. We're called a royal priesthood. We all have a role in God's people. We might not all be apostles, but we all are ministers in the house of God. Election itself is the glorious aspect, is a glorious aspect of our union with Christ. It's part of what union is. We are told in Ephesians 1.4 that God the Father chose us, here it is, in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is before creation. The reason we know Christ today fundamentally relates to God's choice in eternity past to unite us to Christ and make us his. Andrew Murray has a a great book. I've not read it fully. I've I've read most of it in uh, bits and pieces. It's it's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I haven't read it because I I pretty much preach it all the time. I know, <laughs> I know what he's talking about, but it's a, it's a great classic. Concerning this point, he, I think he, he very helpfully writes this. <clears throat> and that means 
um, concerning God uh, electing us in Christ before anything existed. That means that those who will be saved were not even contemplated by the Father in the ultimate counsel of his predestinating love apart from union with Christ. They were chosen in Christ. In other words, election, if we rightly understand it, it is the sweetest comfort of the soul since it's God's declaration to have savingly loved us from all eternity so that we are united to the Son in a bond that cannot be broken in some even mysterious sense even before anything exists. The reason everything does exist is to bring us into eternal relationship with God. That's the plan. It's amazing and astounding. I I hate that so many reject the doctrine of election because they um, reject some of the sweetest comforts of your soul and our equality before God. Because of this, I bring up one of our texts that we read this morning. Because of this truth that we have been united to Christ in a saving way before the world began, therefore, we should know that in any suffering or tribulation or whatever it might be, that for sure... For us, there is neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation, including ourselves, which will be able to separate us from the love of God. Did you catch it when we read it? In Christ, Jesus our Lord. The, the, the fundamental glue that holds your salvation together is you being in Christ. That's why you are called and justified, glorified. That is why you are sanctified today. That is why no one of God's children, no one of God's elect can ever fall away from grace truly That is because God has made all of history so that they'll be, that we will be his. That's the whole point of the whole thing. God will have a people for himself who will glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now, we need to note what is said here at the very end. And this is where we'll wrap up extremely briefly. Ananias, in hearing this, oh, let, let me just mention this side note. <laughs> so uh, it'd be sufficient for him to say he's a chosen vessel of mine. And, and then on, a, on a, another note, just as another word of consolation, he's like, Ananias, and, and do know that I'm going to tell him personally how much he's going to suffer. 
<laughs> That's a little bit of a consolation since he's perpetrated a bunch of evil against the church. I guess it's supposed to alleviate his concerns or something like that. But <clears throat> that's just a side note. Here, his response is he arises and he goes to Paul <clears throat> and he, uh, let's see, in verse 17, halfway through the verse, he enters the house and laying his hands on him, he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you would regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that, that, one, that one word is so extremely powerful and it brings home... I think what is central doctrinally election as well as union with Christ right here. His, his, his response is not persecutor Saul, nothing like that. He has heard the word of the Lord saying he's mine. And so the way that Ananias takes it is he's mine. He's, he's no longer an enemy. He is my brother. This is what the electing grace of God does. It takes those who are bitter enemies, who are at enmity with one another, who have had all manner of things done to one another. And, and in all human efforts, we look at two different peoples and say, I don't think anything can cause these two people to be reconciled by any human person. And yet, at the same time, this is what the grace of God does. It brings those who by all human effort cannot be reconciled and brings them together into one family such that they can say in the Lord, brother, the whole history of our world is littered with warring clans and tribes on on small scales, on big scales. And you'll even hear from uh, generations down the line, great, 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 great grandchildren who are from these opposing clans. If you're to ask them, and I've seen videos like this, where you're like, well, hey, why does your clan hate this other clan's guts? And they'll, they'll say, well, because uh, something real bad in the past happened and it can't be forgiven. And so I hate their guts. It's tradition. <laughs> we have to. It'll never be fixed. We'll always be at war. Um, and I just want to close out <clears throat> and proclaim his truth. I'm sure all of you have read Isaiah 2. If you haven't, I'm just going to give you a picture. You think of clans and their and um, the, the kinds of crests or the things that are associated with their, pe- with their peoples. I want to just give you a, a picture of what the gospel does and what it has just done to the Apostle Paul. And likewise, it does to us similarly. We have a hope uh, in uh, that'll only be accomplished fully in the uh, throughout time and into the future where the power of the gospel of grace of the grace of God 
does what we cannot do. And that is across the whole world, irreconcilable tribal hostilities will be transformed into harmonious, peaceful treaties where fathers no longer have to train their sons for war because they will all, nations alike, will all raise a banner that is identical, which surpasses all of their familial. They they won't lose their individual flags, but what will surpass their individual flags and crests and coats of arms is a banner that will fly above every nation and it will simply read in Christ. And that is the thing that will bind us all together. But this will be only done through the power of the gospel ultimately. And so let us pray to that end.